Our main text this morning is going to be the first half of Acts chapter 8. But before we read from there, I want to read first for you from Acts chapter 1. A little bit of a conversation between Jesus' apostles who came to him and were asking, you know, a question, and then Jesus responds and gives them some direction, okay? So this is, ju- this is after his resurrection. Forty days go by, and then he's about to ascend to the, th- the throne in heaven, and this is the conversation that they have. Acts 1, 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked, Let me pause. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So let me pause. What, he, what they're asking is, is, is this when all the promises are fulfilled? Are you going to reign here now for eternity? Is, it, is now the time? Here's Jesus' response, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what's he saying? Here's what you apostles need to focus on. There's a mission empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that mission is to witness to the perfect life that you've seen me living. The death that you saw I died on the cross. The resurrection. The reality that I'm alive and talking to you today. And what you're about to see. It's when he's lifted up and he ascends Just like in Daniel 7, when the Son of Man came on the clouds, the cloud engulfs Jesus, and he is enthroned there before their eyes. And where does he tell them to do it? Where does he tell them to witness? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, circles getting bigger, and to the end of the earth. No end. No no stopping. Take the message from where we are all the way out. Witness to the good news, the gospel, the life and death and resurrection that you have seen. Now, God is acting and, and been expanding his kingdom from the very beginning. Remember what was told to, the, to Adam and Eve in the garden? He told them that uh, this was their mandate. The creation mandate says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth Subdue it. Expand the borders of this. Expand that kingdom. But we know the fall hindered the expansion. It seems like really early on, doesn't it? It affected everything. And we've been under the curse of sin as humanity and needing the redemption. Ready for the king to come. Ready for the one who has now ascended and that the apostles are testifying to, to be preached. He is the king. And he reigns. He is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father. Go and preach this good news. Be a witness that it has started. But people, many people, rejected his kingship. Rejected his reign. If if I can't be on the top of this heap, I don't want to be anywhere in it. I'm going to oppose that. And so that's what we've been seeing really throughout Acts, all the way up to where we come today. And that continues where the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees were opposing and arresting the message that Peter and James and John and all the others were preaching. They opposed them saying, speak no more. 
to anyone in this name. The reign of Christ over his people and the consequences of those ungodly leaders, you know, no longer having power. Don't preach this way anymore. But then you can see it as well in Ananias and Sapphira, where they were attempting to gain their own glory through, uh, you know, appearing to do something godly. And they wanted the glory for that. They wanted to build their own kingdom and steal the glory from God, right? They opposed his reign over them and believed that they could lie to the Holy Spirit. What about when the dispute arose between the Greek-speaking Jews and the the Jewish-speaking, the Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking Jews? With the the dispute over their widows being neglected among the Greek-speaking folks, was the kingdom going to be able to handle differing cultures joined together under one king? Is Is it a strong kingdom or is it a house of cards? That was the question. And... Could the reign hold, the reign of Christ hold that unity together in this expanding kingdom? And it did. It did, praise the Lord. And then we saw last week with Stephen that he was hated for sharing Christ in the synagogue. And eventually he's treated like Jesus was treated. He's taken outside the city, stoned for proclaiming this message that there's a better temple and the brick and mortar that's behind us is no longer the most important thing. There's a temple in who the fullness of deity dwells, and his name is Jesus, and you've rejected him. Instead of repenting, the people oppose Jesus' reign, oppose his kingdom, and anybody that would preach it. So that's, that's where we've come so far in our study of Acts, and we see that the killing of Stephen doesn't end all of the persecution that's going to happen. There's still more and more opposition that the kingdom sort of sum everything up in in one succinct okay i can't say succinct but one statement one sentence we can trust that the resurrected king jesus continues to reign and he's building his kingdom through our witness even as a scattered people he's reigning he's ruling he's expanding his kingdom through us whether we're, we're scattering, you know, wherever we're scattered, as, as we go, he is building that kingdom through us. So let's read the start of our passage, Acts 8, and begin at verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great church, destroying it. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you hear the name Saul. He's going to be Paul later on. Significant that you see what he's doing right now because God's going to redeem that man. He's, he's tearing apart the church like from limb to limb, like a wild animal, just ripping the church apart. And later on in the, in the book, we'll hear Paul say himself, he was involved in the arrest and the beating of many believers, many people that were following Christ. So what about this, this whole fleeing thing? If you're like me, you wonder, was it, was it sinful for the people to flee? I don't think so. In, in Matthew 10, 23, Jesus tells us that 
that when we flee, when we're persecuted, we're, we're to take the gospel with us as we go from city to city, from town to town, implying that we'd be on this mission and being scattered until his return. Persecuted Christians, the most important part is that we hold on to the faith as we're scattered, as we go. We take the gospel with us. We give people the reason for the hope that is in us. So what then about the apostles? They didn't scatter. You know, I have to think they're shepherding the people that did stay, but they're also beneficiaries of some of the, the, the favor that they had in the sight of the people. Gamaliel, for example, having said, you know, let's let it go so that we're not found opposing God. It'll die out if it's not of God. So take a step back, and he was able to convince the rest of the Jewish leaders at the time. And yet, the broader church doesn't have that luxury. The broader church has to scatter, and they take Jesus, as we'll see here in verse 4. We'll see that they take Jesus because the persecution scatters these gospel seeds. That's the first header we want to look at. Persecution is scattering these gospel seeds. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The word. And as you read on through the, the passage here, the word speaks of Jesus. It's the word of Christ. It's the word of God. It's the word of the good news. It's the gospel of the life and the death and the resurrection, the change that God is bringing about in the world through the reign and the rule of Christ. What had been hoped for has come. So they scatter. They preach the word. They say, look, all of this Old Testament stuff is done in Christ. He's come. The Messiah is here. The long-awaited king. Believe. Repent and believe the good news. And then what follows in, the follow, in these next verses is that we're going to see a specific instance of one place, very important place, that the gospel went. One person taking it. It's not the whole picture. It's just one example of the gospel going. Philip, one of the evangelists and deacons and little A apostles that we've heard about before, takes the good news into the old northern kingdom of, of Israel. So you had in, in the time after Solomon, the kingdom split you have northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Philip's going from Jerusalem into the northern kingdom that was called Israel in the Old Testament. This would have been a controversial thing because these people were seen as outcasts. And we'll talk some more about that in just a moment. There was a lot of separation. But verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Much joy. So what's happening here? The text is telling us Samaria is being transformed by the gospel. This is not the same place. The cultural barriers that would have kept the Jews from sharing anything good with the Samaritans, that's being changed. Philip has gone there. Um, the, the division over where we're supposed to worship, 
That's being changed. These people are paying attention to Philip and listening to the gospel. That's different because as we'll see in just a minute, they've been giving their attention to something very, very different. So before Jesus, we didn't have the woman at the well scene that you might remember from John, the, the, the gospel of John. There was, that, that had not happened yet. And Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be inferior racial half-breeds. When, they, when the northern kingdom had been captured, a lot of people just went out and were dispersed. Some people did stay. They, they sent a new group to intermarry. And now they're you know, blending cultures, blending idolatry and worship, and changing the scripture that they read to just be the first five books that are modified even of the, of the scripture and rejected completely all that comes after that, all the prophets that are written. So these people were treated basically like Gentiles, outsiders by the Jewish people. But that didn't hinder the gospel going forth and being scattered thanks to what the Lord was doing following this persecution. The people are sort of Jews, but on, on the fringes. And so now the thing that has changed is the presence of the gospel, the effects of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. It's changing everything. Relationships that were founded are, are, are now being founded on a better basis than just cultural similarities and, and you know, that sort of you know, history and whatnot. There's a transformation from top to bottom that's, that started there. And this, this man, Philip, filled with the Holy Spirit, is carrying the good news so these people can be inside of the kingdom. The question is, as he scatters the seeds, is the, is the seed going to take? Or is this going to be hard ground, right? That's the, that's the possibility all the time. And it's not based primarily on how the message is shared. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that is the deciding factor there that goes to these people. So, is, the question is not, did Philip do it right? The question is, is the Holy Spirit going to bring fruit to bear in this case? And he does. You can see, first of all, that there's faith and freedom and joy that have come into the city. Faith and freedom and joy are seen in these passages. The reign of Christ is there, and they're, they're trusting the message of Jesus, the long-awaited king. The kingdom is expanding now, even to these outcasts. So there's, there's faith there. There's freedom Whereas before they were paying attention to other things uh, and had their own set of idols, they were giving their attention, as we'll see in a moment, to a magic man, a magician. Now they're paying attention to the gospel. So they're free from that other stuff that was their bondage. And there's joy in the city. There was darkness from this magic, as we'll see here. So, so let's dive into that part. Acts 8-9 tells us more about what had been going on in this area before the gospel came and brought this faith and freedom and joy to, to the city. Verse 9 says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him. You hear that? Same, same word, same phrase. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's kind of a, that's a blasphemous thing to say. This is God's power. This is, this is the, the, the strength, the, the spirit of God in this man. He is the one. 
And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Top to bottom, men and women, everybody is there and they're hearing the message of Philip and they say, this this is what we want. This is, this is real. Even Simon himself believed, verse 13. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So, what's happening? They've turned from magic and the occult to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The simple message that's for everybody that Jesus has reconciled us to God. Reconciled sinners like us. Idolaters like us. Magic and, and people under the, the influence of the occult. He has reconciled us to himself. They're believing. And they've turned from that magic, from the occult here in this section. It's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture of the power of God working through the simple message, the foolishness of preaching. He's working through these, these words that are spoken by Philip, the truth about Jesus. So whereas before they said that Simon was the power of God called great, now they're seeing true greatness, true power, manifested in the signs and wonders that are coming through Philip as he is part of. Witnessing is his role, but what's happening, God is bringing this people that were part of the northern kingdom. He's reconciling. He's fulfilling the promise to bring them back under the rule of the Messiah, the Christ, who is Jesus. That's what he's done. Interestingly, as we continue to read, we find out they haven't yet fully experienced what God is going to do with them through the Holy Spirit. They have not yet fully experienced the, the Holy Spirit who will be given to them as a witness to the, to, to the apostles and to themselves. Okay, so let's, let's check this out. It's, it's a little tough because the question always for us is, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Is this normative or is this something that had a specific purpose for a specific time? And uh, so we'll dive into that. What I want you to see as, as we read these next verses is that believing Samaritans are confirmed to be in the kingdom. They're part of God's people. The believing Samaritans are confirmed to be part of the kingdom now, reconciled through the gospel, through Christ. Verse 14 says this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Wow, what's going on? We've already talked about how the kingdom was split. Under David and Solomon, the, the northern and southern kingdom um, who were in covenant with God were united. After Solomon's death, the kingdom, when, when Christ came, he came ministering in there, in, in that southern region primarily. He did go to the north. He ventured into Samaria as well. 
Um, but the people of God in the South, essentially, were entrusted with taking that good news out to all of the others. Now that the grace of God has come in the world through Christ, there's no distinction in ethnicity or tribe, for all can be brought into Christ if they'll believe. The curse that the North had experienced can be lifted and they can be brought in through Christ. This can be God's people. And so I don't think that we should take this as normative. Rather, because we can see other patterns in the book of Acts where you know these two events, baptism and, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, happen simultaneously. Um, there's, there's different descriptions throughout Acts on that. I don't think this is normative, but it seems to be a special case to mark that the people who were outside are now included. And it's going to signify for those people that are now coming in, there's a connection. There's an attachment to the church and the message of these people that God has chosen to speak through, through the apostles and their witness. We're not going to stay over here independent, separated from God's people, and do what we did before and generate our own message. We're not going to manipulate the word of God. No, instead, we're going to be grafted in with all the rest so that we too can partake of the true gospel, believe truly about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to be brought together. And it's more than that. The people are going to be united together again in Christ. So it's a signal for the people that are coming in that this is special, we're together, and it's a signal for the people in Jerusalem, the apostles laying their hands on these people, the Holy Spirit comes, they speak in tongues, he fills them, and now they too know we're united. There's no more of this barrier that was created before. They're just as much a part of us as anybody else that believed before. So through repentance, forgiveness of their sins in Christ, faith, in Christ, these people are brought in, grafted in, and the church is growing. The kingdom, the, the borders of the temple are being expanded. Not restricted to location or ethnicity or anything else. However, not everybody's doing well with this repentance thing, as we see in these next verses. There's pseudo-belief that threatens the new church. Expanding, there's true belief. And just like the messy ministry that you and I participate in, it's not all as it seems. There's pseudo-belief here that's threatening the new church. We'll start reading at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What a hard and strong rebuke there that Simon needed to hear. 
Notice that he says, repent and pray, asking for forgiveness. Listen to what Simon says. Simon says, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. To me, I think that this seems a lot like that story that we heard before about Ananias and Sapphira. Simon here is thinking that he can build his own kingdom. What, what amazement could be brought if he, now that these people are kind of captured and taken away by what Philip is doing, if he could regain his audience? What if he could, could, could do signs and wonders like this? What if he could lay his hands on people and have them be amazed at him again? Trying to build his own kingdom. The text seems to indicate that in, in a few ways. One, by, by Peter's strong rebuke of him, saying you have no part or lot in this matter. And also by the fact that Simon himself says he's not shown to be praying right then and there, but he's asking Peter, you pray. Sounds kind of pious at first, for sure, but he was told to repent and pray and we don't know that he did. Church, In fact, as you look at church history, documents that were written by some of the early church fathers with, with Simon as a subject, they were, they were talking about how he became a heretic. He led other people astray in this, continuing to do what he had done before, deceiving people with a false gospel. Ministry's messy. The expansion of the kingdom encounters resistance and, and uh, from all sorts of sources, many different ways. So, what do we see here? We see that pseudo-belief is threatening the church, but God has given leaders to the church to protect and to shepherd, to make sure that the gospel is what's the, the, the centerpiece, the gospel of Christ is the centerpiece of the church's ministry. So, you and I really want strong leadership like that that will stand up to false narratives. Right? I know that I want you to rebuke me if you hear anything like that in me for the good of the body. We need that. We need to be in one another's lives as brothers and sisters so that we can say, hey, that's not quite right. Or, I'm seeing the way that this is going on. What, what's really at the root of why this is happening in your life? You know, I, I love you. I want to help you with that. But that's not, that's not in keeping with the gospel. This is what we need as the body of Christ. We need that leadership. We need to have the gospel be the centerpiece of it. And the scriptures establish all that is necessary for life and godliness. So when we hear Simon pray that, it might sound pious. Brothers and sisters, trust the Lord with the, with the fruit. Um, but we need to recognize, in spite of what someone may say, what could be the reality underneath. The passage concludes showing the apostles return home to Jerusalem after this and have fruitful witness on their way home. Fruitful witness continues as they head back to Jerusalem. Um, verse 25 says, 
Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching to the many villages of the Samaritans. Fruitful ministry. The gospel continues to be scattered. The Lord is bearing fruit in many villages, and many are coming. The kingdom is expanding. Unity that God is going to do the same thing through us, bearing the fruit of unity under the gospel, under Christ, for the glory of God. So I want to make sure that we make application for ourselves. Um, If you're not familiar with our missional communities, um, I want to make a plug right now for missional communities because there's so much application that can be taken from this text. We can't do it all. And I can't make it specific necessarily for each one of us, right? It's a great place for you guys to dig in is inside the discussions with your missional communities. It's the heartbeat of who New City Church is. We love our missional communities. We're blessed with a lot of good uh, leaders for that. The missional community leaders are, are amazing. And so my encouragement to you is dig in deeper, connect with that part of who we are as New City. Um, so there's a lot of things that we won't discuss Things that the MCs could discuss, whether that's, you know, the promises and surety of God's word, you know, specifics about the magic and the cults kind of stuff that we see here, desire for power and building our own kingdoms. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to set that stuff aside. There's a little bit in here in, in, in the notes about it for the MC leaders if they want that for leading discussions. I want to focus this on three other applications um, this morning. The first is that how how beautiful it is when there's spirit-filled suffering. What a gift when there's spirit-filled suffering. There's a man um, named Fernando that says this, there's a depth of union with Christ that comes to us only through suffering. There's a depth of Union with Christ, of intimacy with God. The realization of, I am in Christ, and He is with me. That union with Christ that is the work of the Holy Spirit, uniting us, bringing us into the family, that can only be experienced through suffering. I think that's right. I think that is so true. And we see that happening through the work of, the, of, the, of, of God, through the church here in the book of Acts. It says, not only do we share in his sufferings, he shares in our sufferings. New City, he's not far from you. Those of you that are suffering in some even small way, Jesus is not ignorant of those things. And he's not saying, man, I hope I don't have to get too close to that. He's near He desires fellowship with you. He wants to show you that he is enough. He is better, good, and pour out his love into your heart in the midst of spirit-filled suffering. And he wants to show that Satan's intention in this of drowning out the church, of tearing the church apart, can't overcome the Lord's sovereignty. His purpose and His will scattering the seed and bringing more joy, more faith into the body. There are always two groups that are, that are growing, two crops that are growing as these seeds are scattered. Even in the midst of suffering, you know, like the Psalms speak about the oppressors plowing the backs 
of, his, of God's people. Plowing, what are they trying to do? They're trying to bring about a, 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 a death. But God is bringing about a different crop, a crop of faith, joy in Christ, the glory of God. Secondly, I want to encourage us to take what suffering we have now and train for something that's more difficult. We're not suffering what the Nigerians are suffering right now, where 70 people, 70 Christians are killed in a matter of just two or three days because of some retaliatory thing that's alleged, right? We're not undergoing that, but we do have our own types of suffering. I don't know how to say it any differently. There, because of the fall, we are suffering. For example, some of you are fostering um, or have adopted children that came out of some awful situations. You've, you've, you've for the benefit of the child and, and the love that you have for them and to show the, the beauty of, of God to the world for this child's good, you've desired to take on an extra workload. For yourself and for the name of Christ. If you're accused, like I was recently, of doing something wrong at work, when you didn't, you can take that opportunity and glorify God through the process. We can, we can be hopeful. Our, our reputation is not ultimately what we hope in, but we're hopeful because of what Christ has done and what he's ultimately going to bring about. That's Something that will speak to people. It'll be one of those signs and wonders, if you will, of people that will give people an opportunity to hear the gospel. We carry the gospel with us in the midst of all of this. Through spirit-filled suffering, we can have these training wheels on now for something deeper, harder later on. Don't miss those opportunities right now. Cancel culture or, or whatever else that's, that's there and saying, you need to hold back the truth. You don't need to say it. Don't speak anymore in this name. We can share the hope and the love of Christ in the midst of all of that. And Jesus tells us that we should count even these little things, count it all as joy. When you're reviled, and persecuted for my name. Count it all joy. Amidst our pain, we can wonder whether it's worth suffering for the gospel. And at such times, I think that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Like Hebrews 12, 2 says. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Despising its shame. He endured for the joy that was set before him. We need to have that joy that is beyond what we have right now. So that leads me into the third and final thing I wanted to mention here, which is pleasure in Christ while suffering. Pursue, New City Church, pursue your joy in Christ. Unabashedly pursue your joy in Christ, even in the midst of suffering. Though the circumstances wouldn't lend themselves to doing that, you can find Christ Jesus to be enough. He's better he wants to fill you. He wants to come alongside you in the midst of that. Help you repent, sure, of all these things that, that we do that blaspheme the name of God. But he wants to come alongside you and fill you with joy as well. 
you can have pleasure in Christ even while suffering. So the question for us is, can I suffer and yet find greater pleasure in Christ Jesus my Lord? Can I suffer? And if if you can't say yes to that yet, probably, let me just encourage you, keep going. let, Let the church help you strengthen your faith. And if you kind of waffle a little bit, like, I'm not sure I could do all of that. I'm not sure that when the rifle is pointed at my face, and I'm a farmer in Nigeria, and they're going to kill my family. I'm not sure. Continue. Press on. Pursue Christ, even in the midst of the small suffering, the training wheels that he's got us wearing right now, so that we can grow. And let's grow together, New City Church, in this. Treasuring Jesus so that he is exalted. I want to close reading a quotation for you from one of the early church um, writers and, and apologists. From he, he lived. This is Tertullian. He lived from 160 to 225. He was addressing the rulers in Rome at the time when he said this: "Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to the dust." The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. That's a reality for brothers and sisters in Christ right now in a lot of places of the world. People that that Jesus dearly loves that are being plowed and ground into, into the dust. Let's pray for them. Let's pray that God helps us to be faithful in these small things that we have right now so that we can be ready with the gospel, scattering wherever he takes us. If it's, if it's into Nigeria or, or you know, into the workplace at Robbins Air Force Base or wherever we go, May God move through his people, build his kingdom for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it does, it does pain us that brothers and sisters in Christ whom you love are enduring such hardship right now. God, be with them, strengthen them, help them to hold fast to their faith in the midst of the trouble that they're in. Help them to be found faithful. God, there is suffering here in our midst. Some gathered here this morning that we know of, some that I don't know of. God, in in middle Georgia, There are people that are oppressed, afflicted by the consequences of sin. Sometimes not even their own sin, God, that's causing them the great hardship that they feel. God, I pray that you would use us as New City Church to be the hands and feet of Jesus here in this city. I pray that you would do an awesome awesome thing, not for our glory, but that we would get the joy of seeing you work through
suffering. Work through the ministry of the word in this place. God, we want more people to be standing around the throne in the new heavens and new earth to glorify you. More brothers and sisters. More glorification of our great God and Savior. So do that. Build your church, Lord. Expand your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.